Hello, welcome to Cult Classic Society, the podcast where I, Bobby Davis, and my friend Tim Martini take each other through the films, TV, games, albums, and books we love. This week, it's my turn, so I'll be taking the hosting duties. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great, Bobby. How was your Christmas, by the way? Because if you want to give the listeners a little peek behind the curtain, we're recording this on the 30th of December. So, yeah, how was your Christmas? Don't tell them too much, Jesus. <laughs> we want to get some in the bank. No, yeah, Christmas was great. Um, pretty small, family-centred, saw a few friends. But, you know, nothing too too crazy. How about yourself? It was good. It was nice and quiet on Christmas Day. It was just me and my mum. And then on Boxing Day, went around to my friends for what we called Christmas 2.0. It was a nice big party, roast dinners, you know, just lots of fun. Yeah, I saw the pictures. You look smashed. (laughs) (laughs) I I will neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) I set you uh, some recommended reading this week. We are talking about one of my favourite bands of all time, Streetlight Manifesto. And I set you two albums. Everything Goes Numb, their first album from 2003, and their second album, Somewhere in the Between, from 2007. Tim, did you have any knowledge of Streetlight Manifesto before I asked you to look into them? None. I didn't even know what genre they were. (laughs) It's interesting you say about the genre, actually, because a lot of people would say they're ska or ska punk, but Thomas Kalnocki, who's the lead singer and lyricist, kind of doesn't subscribe to that too much. He's like, there are elements of ska and punk, but they take a lot of Latin and even Eastern European influence. He is of Eastern European descent. And you can actually hear it in some of the music if you actually go back and listen to like certain chunks. So yeah, he would he would kind of... Doesn't spurn the Scar thing, because obviously it is quite Scar-esque. Yeah. But he doesn't... It's not the thing that he would describe Streetlight as. Okay. Just a little background. There's a band are from Brunswick, New Jersey. Yeah, I, I, could, I could tell <laughs> in some of the backing vocals. <laughs> <laughs> the band was originally started by three members of another band called Catch-22. That's Thomas Kalnocki, who is the lead singer and vocalist, Jamie Egan and Josh Ainsley. Thomas decided to leave Catch-22 so he could finish his studies at college because he was only in college, really young. Oh, wow. And the band, despite the fact he was the lead singer and lyricist, the band decided to continue without him, <laughs> which has caused some something of a rift between them and the old band. Kalnocki got Egan and Ainsley and a lot of other musicians to record an EP called The Bandits of the Acoustic Revolution, which has some crossover with the first album, Everything Goes Numb. The lineup has changed a lot between the first and second album because initially it was just going to be, these are great songs, let's record them as an album. Then half of the band kind of wanted to go on tour, so half of the band left and they were replaced. So it's actually a slightly different band between the first and second album. Okay. So by the end of... 2005, so two years after Everything Goes Numb, Jamie and Josh, who were the two original other members from Catch-22, had also left. Okay. The first album that I asked you to listen to was Everything Goes Numb, their 2003 release, uh, their first release as this band, post-Catch-22, mostly written lyrically anyway by Tom Kalnocki, and I think he wrote a lot of the melodies as well, and then the, the brass and the bass lines came in later. He just wrote it on guitar and piano, most of it. Okay. Yeah. What's your first impression? So just from like a general like standpoint of... Because well, obviously, as you said, Thomas doesn't see it as Skull, Punk, like, it's like a mix of everything. It's very chaotic, I would say. The album goes like 100 miles per hour and it only has like few stop, stopping moments, like a few moments of quiet and levity. And I like I like it, but at the same time, it made me start thinking all the songs are blending together. Is that just in the first or both albums? You essentially say that my first note when I listened to the second album was I thought I was still listening to the first album because <laughs> they, they were playing together. Oh, really? Because I, I always find that I think the production on Somewhere in the Between is a lot better. The songs are way more distinct. 
I do think they become more distinct, yeah. but it always felt like... I think my thing is especially... So I actually wanted to ask a question. Yeah. Is the saxophone a major part of ska music? Not really. It's normally trumpets and trombones. Okay. But they've got two saxophone players. Yes. They've got a regular sax and a baritone sax, <laughs> uh, which is really unusual because if a ska band does have a sax, it very rarely has a baritone one. Yeah. It's that deeper, that deeper sax. And occasionally, the guy who plays baritone sax also, if you listen on some tracks, there's a clarinet, and that's him. <laughs> so this album, the Everything Goes Numb, took two and a half years to write and record. Uh, they've actually said, or Thomas has said, it was a uh, kind of he agonizes over everything. Yeah. So he would wake up in the middle of the night and go and re-record bits. Wow. Because he recorded it in a nearby studio. He found it difficult to kind of say that something was finished. Essentially. Okay, so he's a perfectionist. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you say, it's chaotic, but if you actually listen to the chaos, it all lines up perfectly. Like oh, yeah. there's a lot of instruments, and especially if you go watch any live videos, it's insane how they they play faster live than they do on the record Jeez. and the records are fast and Tom Thomas he plays guitar and sings at the same time yeah. he keeps up I do not know how he does it he is a ridiculously fast singer because I actually did put in my notes multiple times I would love to hear this like these songs live yeah they're insane yeah. there's just such a great energy to them I've seen the I saw Streetlight Live once in around 2008 or 9 they don't come over very often because they're not a huge huge band yeah uh, I saw them at the ULU, the uh, University of London Union. Wow. Uh, and it was amazing. Insane. Only problem is some of the fans are a bit snobby. Because everyone considers like Street Light, I've got like quite deep meanings to their lyrics and yeah. stuff. And Thomas has to be said, he's one of my favourite lyricists of all time. His lyrics are brilliant. But it does mean some of the fans are quite snobby about it. Yeah. It's just like, this is, you know, okay, not Scar, but Scar. We're all meant to be here to be having a bit of fun. Yeah. Chill out, chill out, guys. But some of them chant it like it's a bloody war anthem. I do think you always get that with like any like subsection of like a band group, they will like look too deeply into stuff or they will obsess over things. Unfortunately, that always just comes to the territory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had the same back talking back to our Slipknot episode. I know that there's a there's a subsect of Slipknot fans that are so hardcore. Yeah, that like you go to a gig, they scream like it's their bloody national anthem. Oh yeah, as we said, like with songs like People Equal Shit, you know, that's like one of those anthem songs that everyone just like screams. Myself included, but... <laughs> so, like when we did Slipknot, I'm going to go track by track. I don't know how many notes you made on each track or... Uh, uh, I made... I went track by track and made notes on each song. And just like I did for Slipknot, Bobby has both albums in front of, <laughs> front of him so he could see each song. Yeah, I've got the track list. I've, I've got the track list on my notes as well, to be fair. So the first track, confusingly, this, the album's called Everything Goes Numb. The first song is called Everything Went Numb. Yeah. Which is sometimes... I uh, even as a long-standing fan, sometimes change them around by accident. Uh, so, what's your what's your opinion on everything went numb? I I really liked it. So, I loved the opening sax riff. It's punchy as hell, isn't it? So good. I always think your opening track needs to be the one that sets the tone for everything. It's something that obviously I said a lot in Slipknot um, episode with each album, and I felt this one like cool. I understand what it's going to be now, and yeah, that sax riff is like, oh, so good. Um, I just write has a very chaotic feel, and again, I think that also just made me go, yeah, I'd love to be like in a live atmosphere for this, in a pit for it, for yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Did you have any kind of inkling what the lyrics were about? I didn't really. There was only like maybe a couple of songs where I did, but this one, the really, I was just like trying to knock my head it. along. Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to pick. I was, when I was listening to this, song, I was just trying to understand like the vibe of the band, like what they were going for. It's quite hard to understand what Cow Knocky's going on about half the time. 
I listened to an interesting podcast that said Streetlight write two songs. They write songs about suicide and they write songs about bank robberies. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do disagree with that, but it is funny that there are a lot of them will fall into those categories. He of, I listened to an interview with him as well. He often writes songs that to the outside don't make sense because he'll write a bunch of choruses that are about one thing and then a bunch of Kurt verses that are about something completely different. Yeah. So a lot of the songs have two stories they're telling. And to him, I don't think it necessarily, whether it doesn't matter or whether it's that they kind of line up in an obscure way, I don't think it necessarily matters to him. Yeah, I would. I would say like because sometimes, what well, a lot of artists do, it's just they just write for themselves, and if it appeals to, directs appeal to someone like who's listening, it's good. But sometimes, it, only he will know what they're doing. Yeah, you can read like most of the songs. I ended up doing because I'm a, such a big fan. I didn't really think I was going to need to do, especially in terms of the meanings of the songs. I like a whole lot of research. Yeah, I thought after listening to them all a thousand times there'd be some inkling in my head of what exactly each song is about. And as I re-listened to them, I was like, this is what I think it's about. <laughs> but I actually went and like looked up. He's he's not very talkative. They don't do a lot of interviews. He says that he'd rather the kind of music speaks rather than him. The songs have got a ton of meaning in them. Take what you want from it. Yeah. But then a lot of, there's a ton on Reddit of like people going, I think it means this. <laughs> and then I listen to it back and go, oh, I could mean that. Or if some people already had like the same idea I did. Yeah. This one, though, he has spoken about what this is, um, although it's quite obvious if you listen to the lyrics. It's about someone prepping for a bank robbery, <laughs> but they feel, like, nervous. And he said, uh, Kanoki said, this is like a stab. He'd been reading a lot of um, Frank Miller at the time. Oh. <laughs> and he was like, I wanted to do a song that had noir lyrics. In his head, when he was writing them, he was picturing a noir film of a bank robber yeah. preparing to set up and being nervous and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Which is an odd one, because a lot of the, the, their songs have proper poignant political meaning yeah. and then some of them are like this <laughs> it's just like <laughs> he doesn't hit the nail he doesn't like wallop you over the head with constant political stuff all the time yeah just sometimes <laughs> just, just sometimes i was gonna say love the chorus yes so good so good and there's a bit right before the second uh chorus where the song slows down it's like a nice little instrumental break yeah i really liked that it's proper calming isn't it for yeah it's, it's very calming and it just like goes straight back into the Second chorus, and it's just the chaotic energy's back. And when you say like the bankrupt being nervous before that, it's kind of that really like fun fact that he's sitting in those nerves, and then that breakage across that is the bank robbery. Yeah, definitely. It definitely works in that sense. I think yeah. So I think for an opening song, it's really good. Yeah, it's a, it comes at you at a million miles an hour, doesn't it? Yeah. So the production on this album, I don't think is amazing. It's decent. Yeah. But it's not the the second album we're going to talk about later. The production is a lot better. Yeah. And I still think it's amazing. And whether it's just a bit earlier in terms of early 2000s production techniques or whatever, you can still pick out every instrument. Yes. You don't. It, nothing really gets lost despite the slight lack of quality compared to their later stuff in terms of recording. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it weirdly works in the album's benefit, like how it sounds. Because um, I think back to like early Metallica days where everyone agrees the production quality isn't that good, but... If you get if you have good instrumentals and good lyrics, that can overpower it, and sometimes it does add to the effect. And I think with this, it really does. It keeps it quite raw, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they've also and a lot of songs, including the next one, which we'll talk about in a second. That'll be the day. Yeah, it's quite skate punky, straight out of the the bat. Yeah, and if you listen to a lot of old kind of '90s skate punk, it is 
all recorded in you know mum's basement yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of level quality of recording and this is higher than that in terms of quality yeah. I was gonna but, say I could imagine playing like uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater and having that on the soundtrack yeah you'd get like Superman by Goldfinger yeah and then um, everything went numb like <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. it would fit wouldn't it, it would yeah totally it, fit. it blends perfectly so yeah we'll move on to that'll be the day what do you think of uh, track two my immediate note was the guitar and bass makes it feel very heavy at the start. So, yeah, it's very... Sca- this is one of the tracks that's like, they're leaning into that 90s skate punk stuff. Yeah. And what I like about the bass on here, despite the fact it's like skate punk, but a lot of skate punk is just a very simple bass line. Yeah. Like, eight at the same note, eight yeah. at the same note, eight at the same note. He's not like that. He does a proper walking, fast... Silly bass line. He's incredible. I was going to say, like, it does feel like a lot... It's their first album, so they want to show off everything they can do. So just, like, messing around, just having fun. Yeah. And I feel like that's just a fun vibe like, that the whole album like gives. It's just fun. So, you know, again, you said in the first song there's a slower drop. Yeah. Did you kind of... The drop in this one, did you think... Did you kind of pick it out at all? I didn't pick up the, up the drop, but I did notice that he was playing around with the structure a bit. Yeah, because it... Well, sorry, the thing I was going to say about the drop is it sounds almost medieval. Like, he's, yeah. it's almost that kind of... Almost sounds like it could be on a loop. Like, the way he... <laughs> the structure of yeah. how he's playing. Because he's based around the structure as well, because the second verse is much shorter than the verse, the yeah. first verse. And yeah, I found that, I found that really fascinating because it's more like sometimes it's like, okay, I just need to get this part out and then we can just go back to instrumentals and have that fun vibe. They don't do any standardised structure at all. No. And so like you can get a random instrumental between a verse and a chorus, then another one later that's completely different and it makes yeah. no sense to structure. But... They've, just, they've clearly just gone, oh, this will sound wicked. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Again, it just sounds like they're just having fun on this album and as a listener, you're having fun alongside it. Yeah, I mean, one thing in my research, I like to listen to what other people's opinions are on podcasts and yeah. YouTube videos that are people reacting to it. And every, the word fun just comes up all the time. And this one, especially, the lyrics are a bit depressing, but the music <laughs> is fun as hell. Yeah, I, I wrote that as well. It's a, it's a Fun juxtaposition. Yeah. And it happens a lot with Streetlight because he writes yeah. a lot of serious, depressing songs. Very rarely does the music reflect it. Yeah. So in this one, the the song from seemingly like kind of what I thought and looking into what other people thought, it's about preventing someone trying to stop someone killing themselves, trying to prevent a suicide. Yeah. In, an, in a, They're quite anti-religious as well. Um, I, I, I had noted um, a reference... Yeah, I think it's it's very obvious because what the song is called, but we'll get to that point. Yeah. We'll get to um, it. In even this one, he's so when he's trying to stop this person committing suicide, he's he's there's a line he says or a couple of lines where he says, "Now we're saved, every single sin absolved. What's the point denying when we all know we are lying to ourselves?" He was around twenty twenty one when he wrote these stuff. Wow. And I'm like, as a teenager, when I was in a band at that age, I was writing stupid shit about getting drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? what he was studying at college, university. No, he's never really spoke about it. He said that he went back and finished, but I don't know. Philosophy would be, yeah, I, I guess. Like, because, I mean, philosophy, politics, or religious studies. Like, yeah, maybe. Any of those. Well, in America, you don't study one thing, do you? You have a major and a couple of minors. Yeah. So he, it wouldn't surprise me if it was like philosophy, science, and a minor in religious thing to see what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. So the next song... Uh, have you got any, sorry, got, just got one notes, more yeah. note, yeah. So, but yeah, I'll be instrumental for very down the lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> as we were alluded to. But then, there's just a random 20 seconds of silence at the end. Yeah, and it kind of phases down, doesn't it? Yeah. Very slowly, yeah. And I, it felt weird to me. Because with most songs, when there's like silence, it's normally like 
something's going to happen. 10, 50 yeah. seconds. And then if you hold it for that long, yeah, something's going to happen. So I think they he's trying to build, or they're trying to build as a group. Yeah. Probably his idea, because he's, again, the lead kind of thought behind yeah. most of it. For the next song. Yes. Which has a very... It's just a guitar and him. Yeah. And it's quite... It's, this is the song. So point, counterpoint, track three, is the song that made me love Streetlight Manifesto. Really? So my friend Reeve... He is the one who introduced me to them, and this is the song he showed me, and I was like, "God dang, these guys are insane!" And to that point, that intro bit is, especially amongst the kind of Scar fans, yeah. punk fans, is iconic. That intro, what he's when he's talking, and I think the silence is to allow that to breathe. So because okay. he literally goes, it's, you know, say ten seconds or so of silence after yeah. the instruments have actually all faded out, yeah. and then he just goes, "I've got a gun yeah. in my hand," but the, and then. So yeah, the, I put in my notes. Do you remember the, there's an episode of The Simpsons uh, where Tall Tales where they're on a train and they have a hobo singing yes. a song. It's the exact same instrumental, like guitar strum, exact same lyrical pattern, <laughs> really? everything. It's the exact same, and that's all I could think about. When we stop recording, I'm gonna have to go watch that. Yeah, because I, I remember that, but I don't remember the song. Because I. Yeah, because he was talking about, like, uh, yeah, because, like, singing this song. I was like, and then all I could think about was Simpsons. <laughs> so I actually had to restart the song so I could actually absorb the lyrics. I was like, wow, did you, this is really dark. Did you take those lyrics in, the the intro? Do you remember them? I don't remember it well, but I know, like, like holding a gun in his hand and stuff yeah. like that. It's like, I was like, this is really dark, but he's saying it in such a weirdly joyful manner. Yeah. This is one that I never, if I'd really thought about it when I was younger... I never thought it sounded like suicide. I thought it, again, fitted in closer with the first one, which yeah. is about someone committing a crime, yeah. some description. I've got a gun in my hand, the gun won't cock, fingers on the trigger, the trigger seems locked. Yeah. Can't stop staring at the TikTok lock, and even if I could, I would never give up. Yeah. But then that that kind of, you go, that could be about suicide, but the next bit is, with a vest on my chest, yeah. sounds like a bulletproof vest, right? Yeah. And, yeah, vest in my chest, a bullet in my lung. I can't believe I'm dying with my song unsung. And if I want to die, why you bury me alone? Because I'll never get to heaven if I'm singing this song. Yeah, so it's, it sounds it's, like he's been shot, not yeah. that he shot himself. But a lot of the breakdowns of this, and he's not really spoken much about this song either. Most people interpret it in two halves. That the first half is about someone else trying to kill themselves, and he's trying to stop them, and he gets shot. Okay. And then the second half is the opposite way around. He's telling the stories if he was trying to kill himself, someone was trying to stop him. Yeah. He talks about suicide a lot. I don't know he, whether he's got kind of a lot of friends with it or he's got his own kind of mental health problems. Well, I was going to say, like, so it's like 2003, early 20s. I think there's a, like, the cultural zeitgeist at that time. I think there's like a lot going on because this is around a time of like, well, obviously, this is two years after Iowa. Yeah. And like, that's very heavy stuff as well. So I think that like, cultural youth at the time was very. There's a lot of anti war yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. Because of Bush and the. Uh... And I think the sentiment was, I don't want to, like, especially when you said, I don't even have this country if they're doing all this. So yeah. One way out. <laughs> yeah, maybe. This one, despite the fact I love it, and I could probably recite it word for word just speaking yeah. it, but even knowing the words off my heart, really understanding what it's about, I'm a little bit like, I don't know. Because I genuinely, for a long time, just thought it would fit in with the whole robbery vibe they do yeah. quite a lot, or the crime vibe. 
they do quite a lot. But uh, nearly everyone else, when I looked into this on Reddit and on um, lyrics meaning and stuff, everyone was talking about suicide. I was like, there's no one going to reference the clear bulletproof vest thing, <laughs> right? I, was like, I immediately got suicide fires from it yeah. as well, but I do think that's probably just because of the music I listen to. Yeah, maybe. Obviously, listen to like heavy stuff. I said, like, oh, well, it must be this. What else could it be about? But then, obviously, yeah, the, the vest line did fr- throw me. I was like, well, he might have just been wearing just a standard vest yeah. and then just shot himself. That's all anyway. he was wearing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as he says, the bullet in his lung, and I don't think anyone's ever shot themselves in the lung. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe he's just really bad aim. Yeah. Do you have any more notes on. Point counterpoint. As I said, using the chorus to open it with have it be soft and then have it also be chaotic later. Yeah. It's like a nice blend of everything. But I thought the final verse reminded me of Bare Naked Ladies one week. In the in yeah. the way that the verse is like being sung. The kind of yeah, that kind of jovial. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like that. That was all I could think about. In my opinion, because I was I watching. Think this is pre that song. No, Bayonetta Days was 90s. Was that one 90s? I know yeah. they kept going into the like late 20, 20, 2000s, didn't they? Yeah, but no, one week was in the 90s. And I think it might have been because uh, I had just watched What We Do in the Shadows and that song was on there. Was on that <laughs> in that episode. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So it was already in the back of my mind. But then, yeah, once he started like singing like the the verse, it sounded very similar to the verses in that. It's like, oh, interesting. Sorry, there was one more note that I just thought of while you were saying that. The reason a lot of people think the suicide vice versa thing is the song's called Point and Counterpoint, and it's an argument. Yeah. I make a point, you make a counterpoint, which yeah. is one of the lines as well. Yeah, exactly. Every time I make a point, she makes a counterpoint. Again, Kaunaki, every lyric, you take it, it sounds like poetry, right? Yeah. But what it means is beyond most of the time. Yeah. So, the next track, If and When We Rise Again. What do you think of that? So, I only had one note for this, because around this point, the tracks are starting to blend together for me. Okay. And I was trying to literally sit down and process like find things that are different i loved 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 the long opening the long instrumental opening it yeah. worked as an amazing breather especially after ca- point counterpoint do you want a little fact about that fun opening was it improvised no <laughs> it is based on a piece of music by brahms so brahms was german yeah and he takes a lot of like kind of european influences and it's almost which is obviously because it's out of copyright, but it's almost a direct thing of the Hungarian dance number five, whatever that is. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't say whatever that is. I looked yeah. it up when I found it out, and it does. <laughs> it sounds very similar. Oh, okay. And he clearly has taken influence from it. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same. It's similar. Yeah. So yeah, there's like a bit of a classical influence on this track. Okay, because yeah. I would say like that was like one part. Of something just like it felt very unique, mm. and it set itself apart in my mind very quickly. Well, it's kind of, it's very unique to bring anything classical into what is essentially rock. Yeah. A, a subsect of rock. Yeah. The only other band I can think that have done it is Panic! at the Disco. Yeah. Actually, because yeah. you said I went to a concert last month for an EDM artist called Apache. Oh, yeah. And his big album was called Renaissance, where he would sample a bunch of classical music. Yeah, so it. I think like dance and drum and bass and stuff yeah. have done it a lot. But yeah. I think rock, very rare. Yeah, rock rarely does it. Yeah. But it it's so I always find it fascinating how artists try and blend it together. Yeah, it's there's obviously it's mostly because most of it's out of copyright. Yeah. <laughs> so you can use a it's lot probably of the it. main, it's great. Yeah. You can use a lot of it, and obviously a lot of them are very recognisable. Yeah. Even if you don't know that you know it, yeah. it's on adverts, it's in films, it's Exactly. There's loads of music that you know. Exactly, because yeah. well partially he used Mozart's uh Lacrimosa. 
and it's very recognizable the moment you hear it and yeah. he just like blends it into this really like heavy job like that's clever so i always try to like see how it works now yeah it's clever when when you kind of especially taking stuff like that and i think a lot of people do it with the intent that people recognize it yeah i don't know if that was necessarily what they were doing or street i were doing i just think he clearly likes classical and he's like yeah. i'm gonna borrow from it especially if it might be music he grew up on he might want to play yeah well like i said his, his family are mostly eastern european so the next song do you have any more notes on that if and when we rise again uh no i didn't unfortunately so a better place a better time is a lovely song it's one of the it's got a lot more slower bits so i thought you might enjoy this one i did um so this was actually one of the things i, I wrote it's like it, this song makes me wonder if i ever just get like a full slow song because when they're slow there's such a different atmosphere to it yeah. and i was really enjoying it and they go no, no we're gonna pick it up again we're gonna pick up the pace again i was like oh come on <laughs> i because this is yeah this was the point like every song is really fast i need a breather <laughs> and well, it was at this point actually i had to take this is my first break so i would say I more breaks. of this song is slow than fast this is the yeah. first time that happens yeah there's a sl- majority slow it still does speed up but yeah. yeah but I, I will say also with these two albums, I had to take multiple breaks because it's like, I, I need a minute just to, to calm down. Like, I suppose because I've listened to them a million times. Yeah. When I was doing my notes for this, the first thing I did, just stuck them on. Yeah. And I, I, I listened to them back to back in yeah. t- in two hours without stopping like because <laughs> I love them. <laughs> uh, again, these two, very, in different respects, probably feature both in my top 50 albums of all time. Oh, wow. <laughs> Somewhere in between, specifically in the top 10 for yeah. sure. I would say because this is like my my first like introduction into like this genre of ska. Like even though Thomas doesn't say it's ska, heavy ska, heavy ska influences. This yeah. is my first like foray into that. So oh, we'll change that as this podcast goes. On. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of ska bands for you to listen to. So I think it was just me still trying to wrap my head around it and understand stand it from that point because a lot of things I listen to is like rock, rap, yeah. EDM. So understand oh maybe this is just a star and how it is so i think it's not actually they're quite unique within they are the fans and fans of scar music consider them scar even if thomas says thomas says they're not but they are very unique sounding within scar yeah a lot of scar stuff is jovial this is quite jovial but a lot of up notes on the offbeat and stuff like that and they don't do any of that that's kind of a real mainstay of scar is a guitar played upwards on the offbeat I don't think he does that once. The only thing that kind of links them to Scar is the the brass section. Yeah. And the fact that some bands call themselves Scar Punk. Yeah. And they're quite punky if you listen to the guitar and bass and yeah, drums. Yeah, absolutely. They're the kind of thing that, that makes it sound Scarry. I think Thomas never wrote it intentionally to sound Scarish. That's yeah. why he says it. It's just that he had a bunch of friends that played brass instruments and he had a bunch of friends that could be in a punk band and just brought those together. Yeah. So anyway, A Better Place, A Better Time is one of the rare songs that uh, Cal Nocky's actually spoken about. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, so there's a video of him. You can find it on YouTube. He's playing it just himself. He does uh, tour himself under Toke, T O H K A Y. It's kind of Tom Cal Nocky. I will talk about that later. Ah, okay. And he plays, when he does the solo tours, he yeah. plays as just straight like jams as well, just yeah. solo, just with an acoustic guitar or a piano. And he stops midway through the song and explains the song. Oh, wow. Which is, uh, he does stuff like this on a whim quite often. The rest of that tour, he won't do it. But for some reason, he can see the audience are really vibing. And he's just like, I'm going to talk about this song. So he stops halfway through the song. And this is... I found the, the link on Reddit, actually. but uh, So someone shared it when people were asking what they think this song is about. And the first half of it, or half of it, is about 
when Kanoki was about 18, he worked summers as a camp counsellor oh, wow. in a camp for people with learning difficulties and physical difficulties. And there were two kids who were best friends. They both had cerebral palsy. And they actually lived together year round in a like a care home. And apparently when one of them had to go for an operation, they said something. It wasn't word for word what he said because Tom poetry it up. Yeah. But he essentially said to the guy, his friend, it'll be better when you've had the operation because yeah. you're in pain. The operation will make it better. And I know you're scared, which is the line. Which then He doesn't say this actually, but obviously when you listen back to it, it's like you're going to awake in a better place at a better time. Yeah, yeah. It's that. So I think that's the verses, and then the chorus. There's a friend of his who was a who was a girl, and she once said to, uh, he had like a deep conversation with her, and she was really struggling, and she said, "Some days I just hope I don't wake up." Yeah. And so he did this song split between someone being nervous about kind of coming around for an operation and someone who just doesn't want to wake up at all, and they kind of, in a weird way, those storylines are almost complementary. Yeah, I was about to say in that in a very it roundabout really way. Well. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so. This is what I mean by like. There's no way you can know what half the songs are about because half of them have like personal stories from his life. Yeah, and he's not gonna sit. He doesn't often sit and tell you what they're about. Yeah. So I do have one more note, and it was like I I appreciate the change in verse because it makes the song feel like it's in parts, like it has segments. Mm. Yeah. And they gave me very um, Metallica Master of Puppets vibes. Okay. Because that song, it was like this big, like you know, do that opening chord, and then it goes into. Slow, so slow apart and then goes to fast again and it's and it again had a similar vibe to the song like really split it up yeah. yeah yeah okay I can see that I think most of their songs some of them do roll straight through and you're like god damn that was just an assault on my ears yeah. in a good way they're constantly going at me then other times you will be sitting especially as they did there's another album after these two and they haven't done one since then which was 2013 but I remember listening to it and going, God damn, that hits. And then all of a sudden the verses go really slow and you're like, oh, oh here we go. And then back up and then back yeah. down. But it really gives a distinct thing to each part of the song. If amongst the fans, and I've got friends who are fans, if you say a song, everyone picks out a different part of that song yeah. to remember that song by. So you go, oh, point, counterpoint. And some people go, oh, that that long intro where it's just him and the guitar. And then other points are like, no, no, the chorus. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. And I think... Again, the same with what you say about Metallica. Splitting things up that way makes people appreciate different parts of each song. Yeah. Uh, so the next one, another one that he's actually spoken about is uh, We Are The Few. What did you think of We Are The Few? I actually were like, the songs just blend together too much, but I couldn't decide if I liked that or not because, again, when I talk about like it being live, yeah. if this song, this whole album could be an entire set list. Oh, it could, yeah, for sure. And I was like, I, I like it from that point of view. But at the same time, it made it harder to take notes. Yeah. Because I could be just like writing something down on my phone and say, oh, it's good. Let's just still this up. Look up on my like screen. Like, oh, no, we moved on to the next one. <laughs> and that was becoming a major issue for me. Yeah, I think it, so they, he definitely, or they as a band, definitely sculpted these albums to flow together. There was an intentional flow through the album. Yeah. It, very rarely do they want you to stop, know that it's the definite end of the next song. Yeah. They want it to play as an album. Yeah. And that's why, he, again, what we say about him being a perfectionist and going at two in the morning to change parts of the song. Yeah. It's because he wanted it to come as a piece rather than these are individual songs. Obviously, they're you can play them individually and each song has a different meaning, but I think he wants the end of one song to mesh slightly with the beginning of the next. Yeah. yeah. Did you have any notes on We Are The Few? Apart from where you had to stop and start. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I, I just feel like I just really enjoyed it. And yeah, um, again, it's that chaotic energy. It's because I had it playing in the background, like tidying stuff up, popping my head along to it, like tapping my tapping my legs. Going, oh, even though it's playing together, I, I still love it. I think especially if you're not listening in the future, if you listen to these again, yeah. you won't be listening to them to analyse them. Yeah, you'll just put it on and go. Oh, the album's over an hour later ago. I enjoyed that. Yeah, Great. exactly. Yeah. So this is another one, and it's another one that is about two things. He's taken two stories and gone. Yeah, here we go. So one is about. I don't know if you're old enough for this yet, but when you're older and you go back to a place where you used to hang out when you were younger, younger, and there's a bit of like almost like a haunting thing of it, ghosts of the past type oh, okay. deal, where you're like, oh, do you remember when we used to hang out here? And oh, there's that person we used to hang out with us all the time here, and I've not seen them in ten years. It's that kind of vibe okay. of like looking back. And then the second bit, and this is the one I was like, what the hell? Because I could, I get that bit. That bit makes sense to me. This bit. So there was a period of time around this time when he was writing the lyrics that a lot of little girls were being stolen from their homes to be trafficked. And so, and he says, it seems like this kind of shit happens in horrible ways, but then you realise it's always happening and it's just that it becomes like a thing for the media to exploit it at certain times. Yeah. He said he compared it to a thing called a shark attack summer where obviously in America they decide there's a slow news summer. Yeah. Let's talk about shark attacks, which make them seem like they're way more abundant this summer than they ever were, when they're not really. Yeah, absolutely. And because of the media, we don't know that these little girls are being stolen all the time. Yeah. Being kidnapped all the time. And some of them turned up, he says some of them turned up killed or worse, which I kind of see where he's coming from yeah. with that, that saying. And the idea is, he's some of the lyrics are saying stuff that he would like to say to these girls who are like, don't know where they are, what's happening. Yeah, yeah that people are still looking for you. People still care about you and stuff like that. And when I first read that, I was like, that's really disjointed for those two halves of a song. Yeah. But when you go, oh, what you could, the way you could look at it is if you turn that round, yeah. these little girls who are being kidnapped, or probably there's probably boys as well, but he says girls specifically, don't get to be the age where you can be nostalgic about the place you grew up or the place you used to hang out. And I think there is a link there, whether he intentionally put that or not. My, the way I read it when he reading him say that, is if you switch that around, they are not able to kind of get to that. Yeah. Whereas where kind of, it's sad and you feel old and like you've missed a lot, but you're privileged to have got there. Yeah. You're privileged to still be like wandering around that area. It's just fascinating to me that with like how he will reveal some of these like lyrics and their definitions. They can be quite dark. And then when you hear the songs, they're so very chaotic and jovial. Yeah, yeah. And it's really shocking to like experience that. It's, it's very like I think you used the word juxtaposition earlier. Yeah, it's a real juxtaposition between the two points. It's almost a point counterpoint, isn't it? <laughs> um, there's a line, and then when I went back over the song, and I'd written this line down before I found him saying that. Weirdly, I think it now makes it even more sense. Um, I don't know where we went wrong. But all I know now is I've got to do something right which is the bit, I think if you go back and look at it, it's the bit after talking about the girls. And obviously he's talking about someone should help them or some, or yeah. like at least be a positive kind of something on there. But yeah, when I read that, I was like, God damn, Kaunaki, you go deep all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you anything else on that song? No, I think, well, hearing what is the bass, changing my perspective on it. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a great song. And I think, as you said earlier, definitely will listen to all this again. 
now not having to analyse. No, they're not taking notes for just sure. Just experience the vibes. Of the album, yeah. yeah. Stick it on and just play some video games and listen exactly. to it. Exactly. Uh, the next song is Failing Flailing. Do you have any notes on Failing Flailing? I felt a very, I felt a long intro was very self-indulgent to me. Streetlight are massively self-indulgent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love him and I love them, but sometimes you do go, come on lads. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're genuinely probably my, they're in my top five favourite bands of all time. And I know they're self-indulgent. <laughs> yeah. Because, as I said earlier, I keep going in my head long to see songs. Even though I'm aware it's very self-indulgent and, again, it's me analysing, like, bobbing my head, like, writing this, and I still just like, nope, I'm enjoying this, even though, yeah. like, come on, guys, give me something that isn't just you just messing around together. But what I've always thought, though, is at least they're good at what they do. It's, it's massively self-indulgent, but every single... A musician on this album is incredible. So what they're doing sounds amazing. It's just, but you, you know, they're doing it to kind of wank their own ego. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, it's like, well, if you sound that good, wank away. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> as a listener, sometimes you would want the band to go, okay, we can't go this far with it. We yeah, need yeah. to give them something to sink their hooks into. And with their intro, sometimes it just feels like. They've gone, let's just keep playing, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. Now I'll do my lyrics. It's interesting you say it that way around, because I watched a few YouTube videos of people reacting to Streetlight. Normally it's musicians or composers, because like, um, a lot of people have like reaction channels on YouTube, and if they're musicians, they show that people show them music and stuff. And one guy, he's a composer, and his reaction was, I wish the lyrics didn't start. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I just want to listen to them jam. He's like, I like the lyrics, and he's great, but... Musically, this is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. So I used to take one line from this quite a lot. Uh, growing up from quite like a, a Amiga background, the bit where he says, you got to keep trying, you got to keep holding on to what you got, because what you got, it sure ain't a lot. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for reminding yeah. me. I think, well, he's from that kind of background as well. Yeah. So I think he's he's kind of, sympathi- not sympathising, but kind of highlighting that some people struggle and, you know, yeah. hold on to stuff. There's also a massive anti-religious <laughs> In this one, in a lot of ways, you can read this how you want, but the, the the bit before this and this bit specifically make you think he's saying it's about anti-religion, which is you say you've got the cure, but I don't have a disease. You say you've got the answers, but I made no inquiries. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what I took. Yeah. So that's uh, failing, flailing. Did you have any notes on his to life? So the there's an explosion of instruments right before the final verse. Yes. And I loved it so much, my eyes actually widened. Like, it's like, oh my God. But, and then I actually wrote, when I came back to it after, after I listened to the album, it's like, that could have been the final song in the album. It very well could have, yeah. I think um, in any other album, like any other artist, they did something like that. That's like the big, we're sending you home now. And it's, so it's, it's very interesting that they actually did all that and then we have like five more songs. Yeah, uh, four more off. Four, this, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, so, did you get any kind of meaning from any of this? Because he mentions a few people in it. I don't really get much meaning. I was This is me just trying to, like, figure everything out. I yeah. think my thing was, as well, he moves so, sings so quickly. It's like rapping, isn't it? It's yes, insane. that's actually... <laughs> yeah, it... <laughs> and he plays guitar at the same time. I know, it's insane it, how he's able to keep up with that, with everything. So, the people he mentions are Van Gogh, Hemingway... And a, a novelist I've never heard of called Albert Camus, who are all novelists and painters yeah. who commit suicide. 
apparently there's a reference to Kurt Cobain, but I can't find the lyric that they mean. People were saying it on Reddit, and I was like, what are you talking about? They also use a lot of war imagery in this one, which becomes more prevalent in the next album. But it, it kind of starts here. They talk about soldiers a lot and stuff. Yeah. Um, and the, the line, hey, uh, hey there, soldier, what did you do? Just when the world was looking at you to write anything that meant anything, you told us you were through. Yeah. And although they use soldiers, the imagery, he's actually talking about those artists. So he's saying the world is looking at you for the next great novel, the next great piece of work. Yeah. Although Van Gogh was never acclaimed in his time. Yeah. He then They then killed themselves. Uh, which I think he uses other imagery to talk about other things. Yeah. And I think that's quite clever. Again, very... He clearly, I think he likes poetry a lot as well. I would not be surprised if he writes poetry as well like in his yeah. spare time. A lot of the, the solo Toke stuff is quite poetic as well. And yeah. I think he, he, he feels that he can indulge more in the words in that stuff, I think, because it's about him. It's his solo stuff. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any more on his to life? Again, just... I, I, I should say, I do think every song is fantastic. Yeah. It's just... I, I do think it's because I was an, trying to analyse everything. It made me need to take breaks and yeah. this was like the next song I took a break on that makes sense it's a good time to take a break because the two songs after this A Moment of Silence and A Moment of Violence are incredible similar songs they're actually the melody is very similar yeah they're actually written to be two halves of the same thing that's what that's why I wrote yeah go on tell me what you thought of the, are you gonna talk, let's talk about these two together yeah makes sense. yeah Love a moment of silence the slow tempo everything it's like, mm. I was like oh this is this is what I was waiting for it was so good. And then when Moment of Violence comes in, it's just an explosion of chaos. And so it just, it works so perfectly together. You literally, I think you have to listen to these two songs together. Otherwise yeah. you're not going to get the full picture. Yeah, yeah, I do as well, I agree. A lot of people, so I listen to a couple of podcasts. So there's a, oh, I can't remember what it's called. There's a podcast about Scar and they speak about Streetlight. And uh, there's two hosts and one of them said her favourite song is A Moment of Silence. Yeah. And I found it interesting they had a guest on who said their favourite song was A Moment of Violence. And I was like, it's interesting that you don't pair them together. Yeah. I think a lot of people do. And as a combo, I think they work. They work really well if you play them back to back. Yeah. yeah. Did you catch any lyrics in this that you thought, there's meaning that I knew and no one really disagrees with it, actually. This is the first one I was like, the meaning, no one else has gone, but what about this? I, so the meaning I got was... So I might interpret it completely wrong considering he writes about bank robberies and, <laughs> and um, suicides, but I really, I weirdly took it as like a point of revolution in a weird way. So a moment of violence for sure. Yeah. A moment of silence Moments. is about being an outcast mostly. That's what I was So just... a moment of silence, please, for those who never get a chance. They show up to the party, but they're never asked to dance. Yeah, yeah. that's that's what I was going to say. So like the moment of silence, all the outcasts and everything, like... Yeah have a moment for them and then when we find this, those outcasts have the revolution and there's an underlying thing that runs all the way through both of these it's about the members of Catch 22 because <laughs> <laughs> there's a line in it and this is the only line if if you work your way from this line you can see more of it but this is the line that gives it away he says if you hate me so much then stop singing my songs because <laughs> <laughs> they got famous off the back of that first album yeah yeah and every album after that is not as good they've They've done one other decent album, I can't remember what it's called, and the other they've done another album that was really bad. But by far their best album was the one that Tom wrote, Keysby Nights, Catch 22 Keysby Nights, to the point where Streetlight Manifesto re-recorded it because Tom has the rights to the songs. Amazing. <laughs> They're his songs. Another thing about these two is A Moment of Silence is his 
weirdly they're the wrong way around but it's his view on the members of his old band after a few years of processing it yeah and the moment of violence is his how he felt when it first happened yeah they're the wrong way around but I think they just probably sound better the other way <laughs> that way around yeah I think it would but, have been awkward if he did yeah. that is sort of that's a kind of unconfirmed I tried to find so he someone attributed that to Kaunaki saying one was straight after how I felt one was years after yeah. how I felt and I cannot find the quote or an interview or anything, but someone on a lyric breakdown thing said he said this. Yeah. I don't know. But it's out there. Yeah. It's there. And I've not heard anything against it or saying it's true. True. But I say something if he doesn't really discuss the lyrics, I doubt he's not going to confirm nor deny it. No. Yeah. Especially if it's about people he was, had, once had a friendship with. Yeah. So the last two songs, the saddest song and the big sleep, I think these two pair together quite well as well. The only thing I could find informationally, a lot of people, this is really on the like lyric breakdown things, the saddest song, yeah, it's about sad stuff. It's like, yeah, all right, well done. But Kanoki said one thing about this song, and it's that it started as a sad piano song, just him and a piano. Yeah. And then everything got built on top of it to become what it is later on. And that's all I could find about it. So obviously, if I were to talk about these two songs together, since they, we say we, they blend together, mm-hmm. I would say too. It was at this moment when I realised what, why I felt the songs sounded quite similar. The drums. Yeah, he just powers through, doesn't he, man? Yeah. Because yeah. also we spoke about drums in our Slipknot episode, especially yeah. with, with Joey. And obviously when you to Iowa, you were set, you go, why would people say Joey's one of the best drummers? Then you get to volume three, you're like, okay, I can understand it. Now I get it. it, yeah, yeah. With this, it just felt like he was just doing the same riff over and over and over. And I just feel like maybe it was just to help complement everything else. I think everyone else was being flashy. And also, I, if I remember rightly, it's a different drummer on each album. Oh, really? Um, and he, I actually think that comes across in the second album is a bit more varied, the drums. Yeah. Because it's a bit speed skate punk in the first yeah. one. And in the second one, he's a bit more all over the drum kit rather than just on that snare and hi-hat and yeah. bass drum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And The Big Sleep, the final song of the album. Is um, that about suicide? Because that's what no, I No, it's about war. It's an anti-war song. Although, you, again... He's not spoken about it. Yeah. Read a lot of it how you will. The big sleep literally means death. Like it's yeah. a slang for being dead. And there's a lot of war imagery in this one. And there's a lot of anti-war kind of sentiment in this one. So I always thought it was about war. But I mean, if you read suicide into it, it wouldn't surprise me if half of it's <laughs> fucking about something else. <laughs> one half about suicide, yeah, it's about war. And again, you can then put them together because a lot of people who go to war get PTSD, yeah. kill themselves. You exactly. Know. exactly. It could it, you could read it either way. And I had one note at the end here, which was. Josh Ainsley is one of the best bassists ever. <laughs> He's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, those bass lines were incredible. So this album was... They did an EP first, and four of the songs, and I can't remember which four they are, were then re-recorded and put on the album. Oh, okay. But just from that EP, they got so much interest that they got the, the record deal that got them with yeah. Victory. Um, we'll talk about Victory again in a bit at the end. Yeah, they got their deal with Victory from just this small EP that they recorded themselves. Nice. Yeah, they got a lot of attention. On to Somewhere in the Between. From 2007... In my top five favourite albums of all time. Really? I love this album. I have got lyrics from this album tattooed on me. It was quoted in my wedding. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that when we get to the songs that they're from. Yeah. But I, this album, the maturity musically and to say someone who is as good lyrically at 21 years old as Tom Kaunaki was when he wrote Everything Goes Numb. Yeah. To say that in four years, to the age of 25, 26, he massively matured. I think he does. And I think 
not in terms of how he uses words, but in terms of imagery and subject matter, I think he massively matures between the yeah. two albums. Lyrically, he's always been very clever in terms of like rhymes and half rhymes and structure. Yeah. But I think this album is like, this album's shorter as well. It's, it's like ten minutes shorter. It's only forty five minutes. Yeah, well. yeah, I noticed that as well. Um, the better production straight out of the gate, and probably gonna hear this on the thing. I'm gonna get the, lin- the liner notes out because there's notes on every single song that Tom wrote in this. Really? There's a note on every song, at least a small note on every song, not just the lyrics like there is in Everything Goes Numb. So I'm going to just get my little book open <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we can talk about the, one of my favourite albums of all time. <laughs> so, opens with We Will Fall Together. What do you think? My first note was it already blends us to the first album. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it did. Okay, so here's the thing. So if you, I, I would say, if you'd have taken a few days away and then started this album, yeah, this album, We Will Fall Together, is a gut punch straight away. Yeah. So the list is over. I listened to this through Spotify. Yeah. Listen to Everything Goes Numb, and then it, it auto played the next album. I didn't set it up to. It just automatically went into it. My plan was take a couple of days. Yeah. Process it. Also we went into it, and I just thought it was like a bonus track I missed or something <laughs> I was like oh what's playing and it's like oh we all, fall to- we all fall together that being said still having nodded my head along and again this made me feel like more like I was out of concert than anything because the moment I put it on two days later straight into it it's loved it so good did you get any kind of meaning from it at all uh, again maybe it's just I, it felt like a really weird like speech like to the public like a very chaotic speech to the public like mm. inciting revolution and everything like we will fall together so like we'll stand up if we fall we'll fall together so I've always thought of this song as a mixture of war imagery and anti-religion kind of sentiment yeah because there's a lot of stuff about soldiers again and then, but the anti-religious stuff essentially he talks about the idea that this life it shouldn't just be a waiting room for like something you don't know that's going to happen. Yeah. The idea that you live a certain way because you're told a certain thing, you behave a certain way because you think heaven is a real thing. Yeah. In the liner notes, he says, so one of the pieces of this and one of some of the oldest material we ever had, he wrote some of it 10 years before the album. He says he remembers sitting in his dorm at uni in his underwear, strumming his acoustic guitar, putting parts of this, not the whole song, just parts of this song he had written. And he obviously rewrote it in 2006. Yeah. So there was a part of the, there was original chord, um, we were up to the part in the song that should be the chorus, but I had nothing. Fortunately, that night, at the 11th hour, Chris and Pete slept on the floor of the studio. The chorus fell into my lap. Upon singing the first line to them, the following morning, I thought to myself, and we probably will, uh, for better or worse. So, the, when we fall, we will fall together. Yeah. He, he wrote that. Like, they'd half recorded the song, and he hadn't recorded it. He hadn't written a chorus. Wow. Which is, I think he probably wrote these linear liner notes because he was sick of people asking yeah. about the meaning so he's giving you something here to stop people going what does this song mean yeah <laughs> I, I I wouldn't blame him to be honest yeah so I think that's quite a yeah quite cool um, so the next song Down 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 to Mephisto's Cafe love it love the opening love the love the entire song it just that like that kind of opening wow now yeah just yeah. I loved every I, I found my song self singing along to it yeah the, the chorus, because obviously the chorus repeats, yeah. um, and the down, down, down mm-hmm. it repeats itself quite a lot. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, I think it's just amazing. It's another song about atheism, for sure. For sure, devil imagery with Mephisto. Yeah. The line, the, the, there's a, the gang vocals are, are just perfect. Yeah. So when there's a bit later in the song, 
where there's not a lot of instruments and it's just them, like yeah. four of them singing. I think Tom probably double layers some of his, but the other guys are singing as well. And it's a bit where they go, they broke him wide open like a dam and a cork that's been holding everything inside. Yeah, You could play the role of rebel, just be sure to know you're wrong from your right. And I was just like, that is... And when they all sing that with the layered vocals, it sounds amazing. Oh, absolutely. Love a gang vocal. <laughs> so, <laughs> I said about the last song being 10 years old, apparently... The bare bones of Down, Down, Down to Mephisto's Cafe are even older. <laughs> he introduced it to Catch-22 when they were originally going to do a second record. But then in a... Uh, uh, yeah, he says, ironically, this is now a song on this band's second record. Back then, it was around, or at least the chorus was. The lyrics for this one summarise the general theme of this record as literally and nakedly as possible. Oh, and Streetlight's first take on this song clocked in at 7 minutes 30. Jesus Christ. Dot, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. It's over five minutes. I think all the songs on this are over five minutes. Yeah. Maybe just shy some of them, but they're in four minutes plus at least. So that's that's what he says about the song. It's just a great song, isn't it? See, so when you just said the Bare Bones skeletons of it were there for Catch-22, I wonder... How much of that does he mean with Bare Bones Skeletons? Like the structure, the. I think what he did was he was he had a guitar and some lyrics. Yeah. Played it to them when I was thinking this for the second thing, and that's probably the only time they heard it. And then they said you're out the band. Well, then he went. I'm gonna go back to college. Yeah. See you in a year, and they were like, Oh, we're gonna do the band anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know the ins and outs. It's not really been published. The ins and outs. All he's ever said is, I went back to college, and they decided to continue on without me, which he clearly. When he was younger, younger, held a lot of resentment about, which is fair, yeah, especially fair. if you wrote most of the first album. So, track three. This Would, song is stunning. I love this song. This is the song that I've got tattooed on me. Would you be impressed? Yeah, but I've got Would You Be Upset, which is the opening line. Yeah. Me and my friend Connor have both got it. He's got it tattooed across his chest, though. Oh, nice. And I've got it on my arm. This song, it's one of my favourite songs. It's actually one of the songs that blew them up a bit more. So, Point Counterpoint on the last album gave them a big kick. Yeah. And then this song on this album gave them another kick. This was released as a single, and it had a cartoon music video, and it went viral. Nice. Uh, My friend Connor has got Tom Kanoki in the video. He's a lion, like a cartoon lion, and Connor's got that tattooed on him. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. I think, honestly, this song is, in terms of like him being poetic, is one of his best ones. Um, And I think it's got some of the most like kind of super deep meaning. It's about kind of taking responsibility for the shit that humanity's done. So, you know, pollution, extinction of animals, just damage to nature, damage to each other, war, yeah. and things like that. Which is the whole line, every time we re-repeat, it's not my fault. Yeah. Which is like the idea that people would say that. That's not my fault. It's not my fault. Then at the end, he says, you know, I know what I have to say. I say it's all my fault. Yeah. And like, not me as a single person, but I'm not helping. Yeah. Like, and yeah, it's just brilliant. And then I actually thought you could... Even though this, it's you know, kind of fifteen years later, like you could, or thirteen years later, you could attribute this to the way people acted during COVID. Yeah, going, I don't care if it spreads. I'm young, healthy. It's not my fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the way people, some people acted during COVID, uh, like we've got people in our local area that were having parties. We could hear it. We could see it. Just the the way people acted, and I think you can extrapolate it because obviously he didn't mean that because he didn't know that was a thing. But it's a similar vibe as in people taking responsibility for their actions. I mean, it's a very disconcerting thing that a song like 13 years later could still hold up in that sense. But yeah, it's that's what I thought as well. It's very like how, as society, we don't like to take individual responsibility. It's always has to be the bigger people. Or, or it's like, oh, I'm not doing it. Oh, I'm not doing it. But why aren't you doing it too? It's a very... 
yeah, lack of responsibility to, for, to, for like a global thing. Yeah, it's definitely about responsibility, this song. And I think, I think it's not only is it a great song, I think it's quite, the fact that it, it blew up a bit was quite important. Yeah. Especially if you pair it with the video. The video is like these animals getting like killed and like seals getting clubbed and like Jeez. pollution. And it's quite a dark video, really, considering it's quite a cartoon. Yeah. Tom's notes in the liner notes are quite interesting. He says, for whatever reason, so much of the lyrics for this record lean towards the macabre, the hopeless, but it is a reaction to the current state of world affairs and the slow and steady realisation that, quite frankly, things are not as they were promised to us. I'd often write a verse or two, sing it back to myself and think, Jesus, this would make even the Teletubbies suicidal. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow, I uh, I like to think that I at least try to weave in some sort of positive twist here to redeem myself. The lyrics here centre around a big old metaphor involving disease and responsibility, which is why I actually took, kind of took, because they use his disease. Yeah. But he means kind of the disease of humans being dicks, essentially. Yes. yeah. But if you take disease as a disease, COVID. you could take it as COVID for sure. But if I sang you the original lyrics for the first verse, you'd likely piss your pants laughing. Not so funny anymore, though, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's what he, he says about it. But yeah, it's about the state of the world, responsibility. Yeah. Uh, so just want to mention one thing. Do you, there's a guitar solo in it. Yeah, there aren't many, are there? It's outstanding. He's so good, isn't he? It's, it's funny that I think he wants you, the the audience to listen to his lyrics. Yeah. He doesn't really want you necessarily because the guitars, especially in the first record, is weaved quite low in the mix. Yeah. And this is the only, well, the first time in two records that he's taken. Gone. No, I'm going to do a good guitar solo. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's outstanding. It's like, I, it made me wish for more. Well, that's the thing. He's as as kind of people people. I think unfairly tarnished Tom Kanoki with the brush that he's quite egotistical, and I don't think he is. I think he, I think he writes very clever lyrics. Yeah. And I think he knows he's got something to say. Yeah. And I think it shows you that he's probably not that egotistical because there would be a guitar solo on every other yeah. track if he was. He is the leader of the band. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. He started Streetlight. He started Bands of the Accusing Revolution before that. He started Catch-22 before that. And never have I ever thought he wants to be in control of this band. Yeah. He wants to or no, he wants to have everything he does be at the top of a mix. Yeah. The guitar is often so low in the mix. And that's his instrument. I know he sings, but yeah. his main instrument is the guitar. And the fact that he's held back for the, that long before doing a guitar solo, I think says a lot about him. Yeah. I would say he gives me Jack White vibes. He's a better lyricist than Jack White. <laughs> I think well, yeah, because Jack White, he's he's always been very instrumental. Yeah. Like, he like plays around with all different instruments, and then lyrics are just there to give you something to yeah. hook onto. And I feel like, in terms of like him, like Thomas being a scar punk person, like Jack just being a rock person, they're very similar in how they approach music. Yeah, except the one defining feature is lyrics. Tom goes very heavy on lyrics. Jack so goes very light. Yeah. Goes very light. Yeah, I think he's Tom's very intel- clearly very intelligent and very opinionated. Yeah. And I think he's like, I've got so much time to tell this story or say this thing I want to say, and I'm going to say fucking everything. And that's why he says, you know, 400 words in a minute. I did also write, the fast lyricism makes everything hit so rapidly that sometimes you just can't process it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, I think I have processed it over multiple re-listens. Yeah. But sitting down and writing what I thought, I was like, oh, fuck me. How much does he say here? Yeah, anything else uh, on would you be impressed? What do you think of this song? Again, it's just it's outstanding. It's a, it's a stunning song, <laughs> and, isn't it? And you say like, it's the one that 
helped propel them even yeah. further. Makes sense. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> so what about the next song? One foot on the gas, one foot in the grave. So I said the opening made it like it sounds like a completely like different song to everything that had to come before it. Yeah, I think it's a nice break in the album. It's yeah. Just just before the halfway point of the album is. Yeah. yeah. And then obviously it goes back to that just this. I just, I put it's their style now. Just a very yeah. chaotic like go 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 go. But because as you said earlier, every song is around five six minutes. Yeah. So I just have to. I found myself at this point looking at like, am I still on the same song? Just having to make sure. Yeah. But I also think it might be about money. Well, this was my thought before reading his notes. Because he says, we might just make it on our own after all. Uh, I don't. I can't even remember why I thought it was about money. <laughs> on the re-list, and I was like, this sounds like it could be about, like... I think they say something along the lines of, they've got it, we want it, they claim we'll die without it. Yeah. Uh, to me, I corporate saw greed. About, yeah, yeah, I saw more about power, like, power, just in yeah. general. Well, I was thinking, like, corporate greed. Yeah. That's kind of my thought. Again, this is the thing where, kind of, they're similar meanings, but you could take it exactly... Exactly how you take it is yeah. different. But there is a there's a there's obvious religious imagery again with the uh, what we do when they call your name and you're not ready to go. Yeah, and it's like that's again imagery of like this idea of people treating life as a waiting room for eternal life. Yeah, unquote. And I think he yeah, again sets a lot of that imagery in his line of notes. He said, with the exact with the exception of exactly two lines of lyrics, this one was written. In its entirety, in the record, in the course of recording this album, so it wasn't oh. pre-written before they went into the studio. I would literally sneak away and write a little here, write a little there, careful not to let on that. Despite being in the thick of recording, this song was little more than a title <laughs> uh, when we began. Almost always, when writing songs, I look for melodies by singing gibberish while strumming the guitar. Interesting. Then when I'm happy with the melodies, I go back and fill in the nonsense with actual words. There's one little sliver of the song where I couldn't resist leaving in the gibberish, as it was a non-too-subtle nod to one of my favourite bands growing up. But he doesn't elaborate on that or what lyric he's talking about. The lyrics are in here as well, and I can't see any gibberish. I just find that incredible, then. The, well, the way, if that's his writing process, that's insane. Because he literally yeah. just goes, da 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 yeah. <laughs> And then goes and refills it back in. Like, um, that's insane to me that he was basically, as he, as he literally said, sinking away Yeah. during the recording process to actually finish writing a song. Yeah, it seems well, it sounds like the rest of it. Some of them are 10 years old. Some of them were written like on the day they were recording yeah. them. They said about the uh, the chorus to Down, Down, Down. That was not... He had written the verses and yeah. the melody, but he hadn't written any lyrics. And it's just like, well, okay. So the next song, Watch It Crash. I love this song. It's a punker, faster yeah, I literally wrote open the sounds like a rock song, like, yeah. like rock rock. So my interpretation of this song was about a life going off the rails, but he's not going to do anything to stop it. He just, just embraced it. Yeah, watch it crash, literally. Yeah. Watch it crash. The line, I, my favourite line is when this song, mercy, mercy, mercy me, I'm praying for the death of the man I'll never meet. Yeah. I'm like, I wonder if he means like, is he talking about like a politician or something like yeah. that? I don't know. I but took it as he's not going to meet his like older self. Like the man he'll become. Oh, that's a deeper meaning than I, I, than I initially ever took from it. <laughs> Again, it sounds like it could just be... You, you, you could show up to like a skate park and yeah. it'd be someone playing it on their little Bluetooth speaker and you would ignore it because it's just, just like... That... Sounds like it fits there. Yeah, but absolutely. But then you go back in and go, fuck me, there's like a million lyrics and... <laughs> yeah. Um, so he said about this song, a tune about anonymity of... The anonymity of war. So the man you'll never meet is... Someone like so... Think back to say World War Two. 
in the trenches. Yeah. You're hoping that guy over there is dead. You never met him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably that. what that line means, maybe. It kind of seems like a game sometimes, like Risk or Battleship, where you would kind of observe from a great distance, in brackets you put the internet, as young men are actually killing each other for whatever reason someone came up with. So, you know, religion, political... Oil. Oil, yeah. Uh, we've expected to hope that our young men will kill enough of their young men to the point where we can declare a victory. That's kind of embarrassing. And it's like, wow. And he's not wrong either, which no, is the... No, he's not. <laughs> Yeah. I just love how the lyrics are so poignant and open to interpretation and the way he just writes his notes it's just so casual. Well that's the thing he because he, he's so poetic he writes this with a story or two in mind and then because the lyrics are so dense and so there's so many of them I think people take loads of meaning from them Yeah, the, most of which he probably didn't intend. No. But I think when something sounds lyrically so good and sounds poignant people then Put meaning on it. I, I honestly, I, I re-listened to this album a few times in the the run up to this, and I was like, "Do you reckon people who were religious could take some of it and go, oh, that sounds like a positive for religion?" And I was like, "I don't think they could take yeah. it as a positive for religion, but I don't think. I feel like they might not be even to inter- they interpret it in their own ways. Yeah, because I think that's always like the fascinating thing about music." Unless you're reading his notes, some of these songs you might not notice about religion. Because, well, as we just said with Watch It Crash, my interpretation was in life going off rails. Turns out it's about war. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it can be about so many different things. And so I feel like they can take whatever they want from it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Just I don't think, read his notes. Yeah, don't read his notes. Because having read, it, read these, I probably won't remember them, to be honest. But maybe I'll take the time to reread them a few times and get in his head my head what he thought I didn't want to do that for this because I kind of I wanted to discuss what I thought yeah and then I knew these were in here someone on Reddit led me to show I didn't know this existed until someone on Reddit said oh by the way there's linear notes on every one of these songs I was like oh alright well I'll, I'll I'll look at them I hadn't read them till I'm reading to you now for the first time I've read them because I didn't want to change what I thought yeah but I might reread these a couple of times now and then go back and listen and yeah. try to pick out what he's saying I was going to say that would be really good to do because yeah. um you now have an understanding of what he meant. Yeah, for sure. Now, the next song, Somewhere in the Between, title track of the album. Yes. Big, big hit. And when I say big hit, I don't mean publicly adored. I mean, it hits big. It's super happy, super punchy, and it's a song that was uh, spoken in my wedding. What part? (laughs) So, you were there. You recorded this. Yeah. Uh, During the ceremony, my friend Connor the one who me and him have matching streetlight tattoos he did a reading in the ceremony and he read a big chunk of this song and I will read it to you now he read so you were born and that was a good day and this is going to be really difficult to not do in the tune and I said to Connor when he was doing it I was like you can't do it in the tune he's like I don't know if I can stop myself (laughs) (laughs) but let's let's, let's try so you were born and that was a good day someday you'll die and that's a shame but somewhere in the between is a life in which we all dream and nothing and no one can ever take that away you had a love, and the love had you, and nothing mattered, you were fine. Some will complain they're just bitter, what a shame. They know that loving and losing is better than nothing at all. Maybe the times we had, they weren't that bad, and everything else was part of a path. We sang, I don't know where we go from here. This is the anthem, the slogan, the summary of events, and we all just idolise the past. So you were born, and that was a good day. Someday you'll die, and that's a shame. But somewhere in the between is a life in which we all dream, and nothing and no one can ever take that away. Sorry, oh. I just I just get flashbacks of looking at watching that through the camera lens. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, my friend Connor spoke those lyrics during yeah. our during our during the ceremony, not yes. just like in the speech. Yeah. Shows you how much I love this band. <laughs> yeah. What I because a lot of their, their their lyrics are quite moody. I did find it. I really wanted to do Streetlight because they mean a lot to me. And yeah. I introduced them to Katie, my wife. She loves them. And then a lot of the other music I love seem less appropriate. Yeah. So pop punky stuff. Fucking most of it's about breaking up. <laughs> but I've always thought of Streetlight as super poetic and the lyrics are great. So I needed to find something. And again, I'm about to read the line and it's just going to turn out it's about suicide or something. And, <laughs> but to me, those lyrics yeah. are about like living your life yeah. and like you know loving and being with friends and being with people you love and if people don't like it they can fuck off yeah <laughs> that's how I've always taken this song because it was always like for me when I was looking for lyrics this is the first song I went to and I found it straight away what I wanted I didn't even look at any other songs when I was looking for a streetlight lyric did you take anything away from this one um well first thing I want to say so after listening to um watch it crash I took a break from listening to this album for a whole day good this is a really good song to come back in on that's the first thing I wrote. Yeah. I was like, yeah, came back is it. And yeah, it's, I'm scared to hear what the notes are now because yeah, it felt like a very uplifting song. Yeah, I did. I, I, I've always taken it, this one specifically in this album as the, fuck everyone else, I'm going to do what I want. Like, yeah. but in a, not in a Rage Against the Machine way, in a positive way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also I love the sax solo interlude. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? So good. Oh, it's amazing. All right, hit me with the liner notes. Come on, what did Tom say about this? Somewhere in the between. This was such a gentle, gentle, slow and sad song. Oh, here we go. What happened? Question mark. My favourite part of recording this one was watching Soprano and Brown go back and forth, literally having a conversation through their horns over and over again until the conversation felt just right. And that's all he says. So the fact that he said it was sad, I mean, I don't know. I mean... There is an element of kind of post-love to it rather than actual love. Yeah. But eh, I, I've never taken it as sad. Yeah. And he doesn't explain himself, so I'm going to continue to feel <laughs> my way about this. <laughs> Maybe the sad part was the recorded process. Who knows? Maybe, yeah. On to 40 Days. So I feel like this might be the weakest song of the album to me. Not saying it's bad. It's just one that never stood out to me. Having a week song on an album full of killers, I mean, yeah. it's going to happen, isn't it? It happens. We discussed yeah. that with Slipknot. Yeah. It happens. There always has to be the one bad song, and I felt like this was it. I don't think it's a bad song. I think it's a good song. I just don't think it's as good as the others. Yeah. Um, I also just felt like the album, it's so intense. So when it has a quiet ending, it's like a great calm down. Yeah. And I think I think that's what it is. It's, like a nice, it's trying to find that nice balance of knowing where you want to give your listener like a little like little break and then you can continue doing it and I feel like he yeah. he mastered doing that I when I'm really listening to this song I genuinely thought you'd like this song quite a lot because and I don't know if you just didn't pick up some of the the lyrics that he's saying but basically the half of what I've always taken from this song is the idea that if you were to judge human nature to be sinful yeah then what's the fucking point so, the idea of homosexuality, yeah, or that's always what it took me to. So Cause, forty cause days, yeah. I immediately thought of Noah and Noah's Ark. Yeah. forty days and forty nights. There is there is some imagery of floods, I think. In this yeah, there is. So yeah. I just thought it was a, it was a very he was him trying to retell that story, um, but I think, instead of washing away 
who God deemed as a sinner, it's yeah. him wanting to wash away the people. He The judge. Him. Yeah. yeah, the judges. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's how yeah. I interpreted it. So I've always taken this as a kind of pro-human should have their own choice to not be judged is. Yeah. I've always taken it a kind of as him being pro-LGBTQ. Yeah. How can you judge human nature the way someone feels, whether they want to love someone of the same sex, love everyone, yeah, or change how they identify? Yeah. How can, that's their human nature. That's part of who they are. How can you judge that as sinful? It makes no fucking sense. And I think I always thought that's what he was saying. Yeah. And if there's a bit where there's a line, if you're going to break it down with any logic, it's absurd. So I always thought it was a like a pro kind of treat everyone equally, let everyone be yeah. who they are. So yeah. again, my argument with religion, like I will respect your right to religion, so you respect my right to live my life. Yeah, I think I, maybe I've, I've again uh, multiple listeners have read more into it than maybe yeah. you have. Maybe if you go back, you maybe see where I am coming from. Uh, but let's see where Tom's coming from. Shall we? <laughs> <laughs> so. 40 days every night after Thatcher Pete and I were done laying down our rhythm tracks so they're the two two of the horn players for the day we'd sit back and listen to what we had so far it was during one of those listening sessions that we decoded that if we were to make a music video for this song we'd need legionnaires outfits so their military outfits I mean. yeah. a desert setting and a camel that would walk in time with the beat don't ask so he doesn't really say what the song's about he just said if, you, if they ever did a music video that's what he would do <laughs> So there's not really any thing. So I'm going to continue to th- have my opinion yeah. on that one. I do. I do like how with some songs he's very nonchalant about. It. I'm not going yeah. to give you the meaning. Just going to tell you what how much fun I was having with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, very interesting what he chooses to say. Yeah. Um. So three more songs left. The blonde lead the blind. Now this one I think, just from the title, you can almost kind of get what they're going at. It's a very um, sexist title because <laughs> the blonde I immediately thought blonde bimbo no uh, he's I think he's saying well if you go back and listen to the lyrics he's saying magazine culture back in that time i.e. you put a model on the front of a magazine yeah. you're going to make women feel like shit okay the blonde leading the blind so yeah I, I've always thought it was um, it's, it's about that it's, and you can now extrapolate there was social media in 2007 obviously Facebook yeah. and stuff but you can extrapolate it to how like Instagram models and fake life and stuff. The yeah. idea that this idea of someone perfect, normally a model. Also, I think um, the biggest person you can attribute that to as well, if you think about it, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. The the blonde person that everyone like would say, this is what you should aspire to. And I so I've always taken it as a very anti media, anti print media specifically back in the day. But you could like extrapolate it now to social media Absolutely. and the way. Um, looks are held above everything else. Yeah, and I, I've always thought that's what it meant. Yeah, I've always thought it meant physical beauty over everything. Yeah, that's what I thought he was talking about. How the the, the media treat it. I can uh, read his liner notes though. If you, uh... Sure, can I just make yeah one note? So the last one minute fifty seconds is instrumental bliss. I wrote in my notes. It sounds like a musical. Incredible. It's so good, isn't it? Yeah. It's that that kind of. It almost sounds like. You know, in the idea of like a big brass band, yeah, they've managed that with seven people. When a big brass band would be, you know, thirty, yeah, and it, that it sounds that big, it's incredible. It is, and this is the one. I think this is so good. It takes away from the idea that they're being indulgent, like you said about yeah. the earlier track. It's just so good. You go, wow. Yeah, it's indulgent, but if it's that good, don't care. Then do it. Yeah, for sure. Tom's notes on this: the blonde lead the blind. This little piece of Dixieland swing rock would have been on Numb, which is short for Everything Goes Numb. 
had I ever got around to finishing it. So it's an older song. Well, here it is finished. Almost every time we listen to it, the control room of the studio during the part where Matt goes into the soaring trumpet, we'd extend our arms and pretend we were flying. <laughs> <laughs> Try it. It works. And then he says, "Atreyu you, Arthur. Oh, um, never ending story. Ah, there you go. Yeah, so he doesn't say it specifically. But I think, take the title, go back and listen to it. I'm almost certain it's about media oh, and imagery and stuff. I, I, I don't... I, I mean, I see why you would come from the idea that that's sexist, because it kind of is, but it's because the media's sexist. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> I absolutely. think it's just highlighting it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, my, my, my favorite is, oh, he's been sexist. Like, there, there has to be a deeper meaning behind it, and clearly there is. It's it's Tom. Like, there's, yeah. there's, there's going to be. Yeah, there's multiple layers. So the receiving end of it all, second to last track. Also, also, this is probably, like, the one song I'd want to hear live the most. Because it's, it's, it's different, isn't it? It's quite yeah. intricate. It's got what you said earlier about different parts of a song. Yeah. I think this, with the Spanishy bits. I was going to say, of... there's a switch up at the 3 minute 45 second mark. It's incredible. Yeah, it, it, the, the musicality, the, the change in that is, yeah. is ridiculous. I've always thought this one was about secondary, kind of some of it sounds like it's about a failing relationship, which is, sounds a bit too base for Tom. Yeah. So I've also thought it's, it's about how generally people are selfish. That's what, that's what I've always that's what That's my interpretation yeah. of it. To be on the receiving end of it always, like yeah. people just being dicks, essentially. Exactly. Um, Tom, Even with people's selfish nature. Yeah. Tom says, arguably everyone in the band's favourite track on the record. This one was a typical combination of two or three older songs that I at some point realised were really all different parts to the same song. Whenever we go to the chorus, we can't help but headbang in slow motion. Should make for an interesting live show. So this is, he's written these pre-playing them live. Oh, okay. Yeah, no no kind of notes on what it could mean. It kind of towards the end of these liner notes, he stopped kind of telling you what they mean. He just stopped caring. It's like, yeah. Tell you how the experience was. Yeah. Any more notes on the receiving end of it all? Uh, no. no. So on to the last track of these two albums, of this album. What a wicked gang are we? And I've said, I don't know why, but I think this might be Tim's favourite. <laughs> it was. And so this is, this is a funny part. So I wrote... Oh, two big notes, and they, and I need to read them in the order I wrote them. Cool, go for it. Shoot. So as I was listening to the song, I wrote, "I find the final of a final song of an album. I need to be the big final explosion or come down, like we did with Slipknot, because yeah. with Iowa, with Danger Keep Close, and with If Range What You Want for all those three albums, they're like the big come down. And I felt like." And I wrote, this was halfway through the song, I have to stress that part. <laughs> but I felt like this song could be been at any other point in the album. Then the last 40 seconds happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, oh my God, it's incredible. It's so good, isn't it? And, yeah, it bumped it up to being my favourite song on the album. I thought, I don't know what it was. I was listening to it. And my, literally, I wrote, in my notes, I wrote, What Wicked Gang Away, then was like, I write the title of the song, then I've got a dash, and I'm going to write some notes. And... Uh, I can't remember what point in the song I'm sure I don't know why I think this is going to be Tim's favourite song end of the album absolute banger and I think it's just about them being a band being that's friends that's what I thought yeah because yeah. it's called What A Wicked Gang Away yeah and all he wrote about it was this started as a slow quiet acoustic jam and has done up to be a rocker boom and that's it that's all he said which wonder... doesn't give you a lot how can such an explosive end to an album that's all he says right so two albums Yes. What do you think? What was your favourite part? What was your favourite song over the two? What was your favourite of the two albums? So... Any favourite lyrics? <laughs> Overall, both great albums. 
both in my notes, I say, I give these albums both 7, seven out of 10s. I mean, that's my- atrocious, but you, <laughs> I don't know how you can live with yourself, but okay. Um, I was listening to every song again, but I'd have to have them shuffled around other music in my library. Yeah. I feel like they would be great songs that just appear out of nowhere with all that chaos. Do you know when I listen to, especially somewhere in between? Yeah. Springtime. Weather's getting better. I want some. I want some brass section in my life. I want a trumpet and I want a saxophone. <laughs> that that does sound perfect. Yeah. I would definitely say my favorite album of the two is somewhere in between. Yeah, it's, a, it's an absolute classic. I can definitely, like you mentioned earlier, there's maturity. Yeah. I can definitely sense that in somewhere in between. Yeah, he's he's well beyond his years. I think, and I don't know whether the shit with his old band, and he kind of let it go when it first happened, and I think he realizes he probably maybe shouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's definitely matured between the two albums as a lyricist. And musically, they're just, I think they're tighter in the second album. Yeah. I definitely do want to listen to the third album. Uh, yeah, that's called The, Hand, uh, the Hands That Thieve. It's a, it is a banger. But it's just, it's not as seminal as these two. Yeah. These two made the band. And I, I think these two are steps. And I don't think The Hands That Thieve is enough of a new step okay. away. And in fact, I think... Somewhere in the Between is a better album. Yeah. That's why I didn't bother going for the third one. I thought these two are way more important. Plus, we did Slipknot three albums, and that took fucking ages. <laughs> yeah. And considering with that third album, we were both really unhappy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go back to that episode, and you understand why why we say that. <laughs> so, I did extra credit. Oh, yeah, go on. Hit me. So, you have been mentioning Toke's solo stuff. Yes. And I discovered that. So, I listened to his most recent single, You By Me, Volume 2. Okay, yeah. Which is him and Sackamore Smith from another band. They would cover each other's songs. So oh, Sackham- so it's a split. Yeah so, yeah, so the first three songs were done by Toke. So the only songs I listened to because I only wanted to listen to Toke. Yeah, yeah. But Sackamore Smith actually covered songs from Everything Goes Numb. All three were from Everything Goes Numb, were they? Yeah. Oh, okay, I'll have to listen to that. So I do like a split where bands cover. No Effects have done a couple of them. They're yeah. always good fun. Yeah. So I, so he goes straight for acoustic vocals and like acoustic songs in that. I found that really fascinating. Because he leans, been he leans into him a lot. Yeah, he like he loves a good old acoustic yeah. jam. Yeah, and because from his notes, he kept saying all his songs started off as acoustic jams and then developed. They build it, yeah. So, but it's very great to like hear an artist go outside of the genre that you've known him for. Yeah, and yeah, they're great fun. Listen, they've done two volumes of it of them just working together. That. To, I'm gonna to have to go back and listen to those. I listened to the first Toke solo album, and he's done a cover of the third one, The Hand. Yeah. He, <laughs> it's called the hand that thieves rather than the hands that thieve yeah because alright this is one thing we're going to have to just get into briefly they fell out with their record label after the hands that thieve um, oh what Victory Records they fell out with Victory now Victory have got a bit of a history and I'm not going to talk about it now but go into a history of upsetting their bands they've had some lawsuits bands speaking out against them and I didn't do a lot of research into it so I don't feel educated enough to talk about that part of it all I have is the streetlight side of it because that's what I was looking at so they were contracted to do four studio albums wow so that includes the two that we've covered today yeah The Hands That Thieve and Bandits of the Acoustic Revolution okay which is called The 99 Songs of the Revolution oh and their version of Keysby Nights the Catch 22 yeah Catch 22 album so they did five albums for them Victory claim that the Bandits don't count because it's cover songs 
And also, they also apparently gave Streetlight a 10 grand advance for it, which apparently, in somewhere in the paperwork, cancels it out. But then I still don't really understand because that still sounds like they've still done four albums for them, which is yeah. the contracted thing. So when The Hands That Thieve came out, Toke, with all these problems, decided to re-record just an acoustic version, The Hand That Thieves, switching the S's around for yeah. some reason. Victory saw this as a break of the copyright uh, and withheld the album being sold anywhere but directly from them. Wow. So <laughs> Streetlight took it upon themselves Anyone who had pre-ordered the album through the Streetlight website, they burnt it to a CDR and sent it to them. <laughs> Amazing. They they asked that no one buy it from Victory. They asked that no one buy it from any shops if it got there because it would be coming from Victory. Yeah. They said, you can pay them to download the album. But they basically fell out with Victory Records. Yeah, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it went to court. And for an undisclosed sum, Streetlight paid Victory and they now own all their own master tapes. Amazing. So they all the, everything they've recorded is theirs. Amazing. So if you were to go and buy a pressing, a vinyl pressing now of Streetlight, the money goes to them. If you were to listen to it on Spotify, the money goes to them. And they also they're part of a, a group of and I can't remember. If you have to forgive me. I can't remember the name of the group. There's a group of artists that get together who think in today with today and in today's age with the way music is consumed. Artists are better off owning their own stuff. Yeah. And they're part of a group that all own their own music together. And I think the point of it is that if you want to do physical pressings, they help each other out with money and then they get paid back. And That's amazing. But they do it as a collaborative effort rather than having a record label yeah. own all your stuff. So, yeah. So now Streetlight as a band and Tom own all their songs it's theirs that's fantastic <laughs> they own their own music how about that the idea that you you have to go for a legal battle to own your own music is crazy to me yeah but yeah there you go and you can still listen to Tom's version of The Hand The Thieves funny how he put The Hand I yeah I, I think I know what he's alluding to there <laughs> The Hand That Thieves is out there because he owns it so Incredible. there you go go out and listen I'm glad you enjoyed it you going to listen to them again you said oh, absolutely you yeah. yeah well that's it that's it for Streetlight Manifesto that is it for this episode of the cult classic society and I think Streetlight really are a cult classic because they have a cult-like following <laughs> the, the fans are nuts Tim what am I doing next week or in two weeks well Bobby in two weeks time we're going to go into our first video game venture oh I'm excited yes I'm going to make you tackle Metroid Dread which was released in 2021 and exclusively from Nintendo Switch on the Switch I love my Switch so that's a Switch is my go-to console. So. Yeah, let's get down to it. I mean, I've got a long commute and it's the best time to play video games. Exactly. <laughs> nice. If you want to follow us on social media, we are at CC Society Pod on Instagram. If you want to send us a quick email, we are ccsocietypod at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you all in two weeks for Metroid Dread. Bye. Salute.